0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of Performance Science at USA Field Hockey, Dave Hamilton. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 42 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Dave Hamilton on the phone, and we discuss uh, working in Qatar, which he did for a couple of years uh, at the Aspire Academy, uh, along with uh, a couple of other guys, or prior to a couple of other guys who've had on the show. We discuss uh, his philosophy, um, which is a really interesting one for me, uh, which I've, I've covered a couple of guys so far, uh, so a couple of previous guests so far. We discuss uh, movement competency and how that is assessed as well as fitness profiling and a couple of other issues that you'll find really interesting i'm going to put it out there and say this is probably one of the best podcasts that's we've done so far um so yeah i'm, I'm sure you'll really enjoy it just before i get going just want to say if you do want to listen to previous episodes of the podcast Get over to PaceyPerformance.co.uk and you can see all the, the previous podcasts on there, whether it's listening through, uh, through the site itself, whether it's YouTube uh, or iTunes. I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a, a rating and review on iTunes if you do listen through that and you can keep up to date with everything that's going on the podcast uh, and when new episodes go live if you follow me on Twitter at PaceyPerform. So enjoy the chat with Dave and I will speak to you after. Okay, hi guys, welcome to the Pace of Performance podcast. So today I have got Director of Performance Science at USA Field Hockey, uh, Dave Hamilton. So just before we get Dave in, I'd just like to um, thank him for his time and his patience with my dodgy Wi-Fi here out in the country. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Dave. Hey, how's things? Good, mate, good. So just before we get going on the on the meat of the uh, of the conversation, do you want to just give us a bit of a um a detail on your kind of experience your background and what you're currently doing
1: yeah sure um i guess like most S and C guys or sports science guys we all kind of start off with a real interest in sport at an early age um i kind of played pro rugby for a couple of years and after that during that time so i'd, I'd done my sports science degree at demontford bedford um and then kind of once realized that my rugby career was probably going to come to a Relatively fast close. I kind of quickly moved on to more of a long-term career goal. Um, I started into did my CSCS obviously through the the USA and NSCA, um, and I got a job over in up in Scotland um, where I worked for the Scottish Institute of Sport. And that was a multi-sport background. Did that for a year, and I was fortunate enough to pick up a role down in Bisham Abbey um, with the English Institute of Sport, where I stayed for three years. Again, in a multi-sport background, so working with track athletics, uh, the RYA, which is the GB sailing team, um, GB diving, and a few other kind of multi-sports that are down there. Field hockey was also one of those. So after a three-and-a-half-year stint with the EIS, um, I got a job over in Aspire, so in Qatar, working for the Aspire Sports Academy. Did that for... Four years. That was again with the the football side of things there. Um, so basically, just oversaw six different teams through the age groups, um, and and the kind of the emphasis there was trying to integrate the strength conditioning with the medical and all the other services to ultimately deliver this kind of long term athlete development model for for these athletes over there. Um, I returned from there in time for London 2012, and was given the job of head head of strength conditioning for the gb women's hockey and did that through to london we were kind of were successful i guess in regards to the way we set things up and what we achieved, and kind of ultimately meddled in london and then following that i was fortunate to get an offer to come over to the usa which is where i'm at now and be the director of performance science so that's a a role which i'm currently in it oversees both the men and women's program the men are based in Chula Vista, um, and the women are based full time in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And so, the role really um, for me is about more of a consultancy and resourcing role for the men's team because of where they're located and because of where they stand on the rankings um, and officers' funding that goes to that program. And then, the main role is is leading um, the performance science program for the women's team. And so, that, that kind of incorporates overseeing. Um, the medical side of things as well as all the other basic sports science packages that we talk about with nutrition, psychology, the yoga, the mobility stuff that gets thrown in, um, the PA, performance analysis, and kind of other kind of typical sports science stuff that we would talk about, strength conditioning obviously, and then ultimately mediating the conversations with the the medical world. So in the medical world we have – couple of orthopedic uh, surgeons that are associated with us, physiotherapists, athletic trainers, a uh, couple of intern interns, a couple of PhDs. And yeah, that's kind of how we shape the program. My role is basically just to mediate, ensure that the program goes in the direction the head coach and the coaching staff want. Um, and I'm there to kind of ask the questions that that need to be asked to ensure that the program is kind of developing from a performance standpoint and a and a sports science standpoint.
0: Cool. So, how has the transition been from? I'm assuming with the EAS very hands on to and, and the hockey and in um, lead up to 2012 to being more of a like you say a consultant and overseeing more.
1: Um, no, it's it's not too much. It's not too different to be honest. The consultancy component is for the men, and okay. my role with the. Uh, The women is very much a hands-on role so although there's a requirement to oversee the different um, practitioners my role is very much hands-on with regards to the strength conditioning component the conditioning on the pitch Um, so the physical prep side is very much hand-on with a couple of interns but yeah it's not a big difference with regards to the kind of the, the way my role looked to some degree with the gb program
0: okay so qatar I spoke to a couple of guys who were there at the minute. What was that like going over there?
1: Um, it's an interesting one. I'm, I'm really pleased I did it. Um, obviously, the lifestyle is good. The working with, I always think kind of as an SNC coach or a sports scientist, as most of them are getting referred to these days, um, it's important to really get a good grounding working with kind of youth because it's where you you fundamentally learn the skills of how to teach um, teaching lifts because just it's that type of environment, an education environment. And you really get kind of a good grounding on, on different cues that you can use to explain to people, obviously, how they can um, develop their techniques a little bit quicker. So I think for me doing that and the whole long-term athlete development model is good. You find yourself, you always end up writing a lot of kind of philosophy documents or curriculums because you're trying to make sure that this whole information is disseminated through the different age groups, um, when you leave, you want to make sure there's some kind of document that is a legacy document of, of sorts that people can pick up and understand where the program has been. So I think from that, that standpoint, um, anyone coming into the field, the ability to work with multi spore or youth, in my, in my opinion, is kind of a, a, a great kind of starting block and a, a, a good way to develop your philosophy and get an understanding of what you want to do.
0: So, do you just want to give us a I mean you mentioned philosophy a couple of times there. Just want to give us a bit of a uh <clears throat> a background on <clears throat> excuse me. How you can how someone may go about, you know, putting their philosophy on paper or is it something that is very um kind of develops over time and how that how your philosophy fits in with the culture um with USA field hockey.
1: Yeah, I think um this, I mean, the philosophy question gets thrown around quite a bit about kind of what's your philosophy, how do you do things. I just think the way your role develops, you naturally develop different philosophies depending on the fit in your current program. I think if we're talking about a physical development philosophy like where where am I at, I think it's important that you keep it simple. I know a lot of people, um, nowadays I feel like people leave university, they've got all this this knowledge base, They've had limited exposure, kind of actually teaching it, whether it's as a personal trainer standpoint, a fitness trainer, working with kids, and they come in, and then they're trying to teach these key lifts, or they're, they're too eager to get to a place that's a little bit advanced. Um, so my philosophy is very much based on keeping it simple, and you, know, you want your athletes to be well-grounded. They need to have good technical mastery. I always like to look at my gym sessions or pitch sessions, whatever I'm doing, and Just get a general overview of the group. Do they move well? Can they do, if someone was to come in, would they be happy with the way these people are moving? And so I'm kind of a little bit um, pedantic about ensuring that I always like to see good technique and I'm not too eager to load bars. I'd much rather make sure people can do stuff well and they're comfortable Um, because a big part of my philosophy is actually about buying. And from the experience that I've kind of built up now, I think. You can have the best training program in the world. You can prescribe the loads to perfection. But if the athlete does not buy into your program or is not interested in being in that gym, it doesn't matter what your program says in that piece of paper. You're just not going to get the performance change. So a big part of my philosophy is about understanding the athlete. It's about creating an environment that is fun. Um, I keep it simple because people are easier to buy in if they can see the gains. You know, if I can actually, if the exercise stays fairly consistent for a period of time, how can they not see the positive changes in that? If I'm constantly changing it up with too many okay. activities, I feel like the athlete gets lost in in this um, circus-type programming that we can do. And I just don't think it's that complicated. If an athlete plays a sport, they're pretty good at that sport. There's a reason you're probably working with them. So for me, make them. Make them stronger. Make you know, lift a big stone, get strong, and don't overcomplicate that stuff. And then once you're in a place where the athlete can move well, do the basic exercises well. You'll start to be able to identify within that process where they have limitations. And so once I've established that, where you know whether it's whatever it is, I, I establish where their weak point is, or or where perhaps they're limited to perform. Well, now I can target an exercise that just kind of strengthens that a little bit. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I've kind of gone off track there, but ultimately my philosophy is about being very grounded with some simple kind of movement skills that people should be able to do. From there, I like to be able to identify where they clearly got some limitations and address that. But surrounding that, I need to ensure the athlete buys in. If I have good buy-in, I have good intent. If I have good intent, I have a good athlete. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how I do it. That
0: sounds good. So first day in the job, how are you? how are you going about Creating that buy-in straight away? Like you say, are you kind of um, identifying really simple things that can like kind of easy wins straight away to get that instant buy-in
1: and then you'll kind of move on from there? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good one. I'm not, I'm not sure it's something that happens on the, f- the first day in the job. Um, building relationships is key. Building trust is key. And <clears throat> I think I always, I'm very much kind of, and I throw this term around, but For me, performance is about taking subjectivity out of performance decisions. I don't like to have things that are a bit wishy-washy. I like to be numbers-based. And often when I go into a new program, a high-performance program, if I'm going to do something with an athlete group, I'm going to measure it at the start, I'm going to measure it at the end, and I'm going to show them the change that occurred, and then I'm going to try and relate that change to performance. And I do that consistently through my programming, and in a way the athlete knows, well, it's not – I'm not just doing this because he punishes us or he doesn't like doing it or we've just got to run because we, we know people run. I'm doing it because I want to show you how this is going to impact you with performance. Once I then are able to tie the dots, or sorry, you know, join the dots, you're gradually getting more and more buy-in. And over time, I can start throwing in a few things a little bit out there with regards to the prescriptive side of things or you know, slightly different from a, a programming standpoint. But I'll always try and tie it back to the performance. And the performance stuff is about the work they do within their sport. And I'll use variables on the pitch or I'll use variables um, that they can understand to explain how it's made an improvement for them. So you talk about guys that are moving well or girls that are moving well. How do you go about assessing that movement? Um, Yeah, I think, uh, again, it probably depends on the environment you're in the environment you're in so I've definitely come from different backgrounds where I've had athletes come in I see them maybe once or twice a week when I was with multi-sport and I definitely needed to do with them a movement screen I definitely need to do some kind of profiling to understand where is this athlete coming from where are the opportunities to make a difference and then how does how once I've sorted all that out how can I make them better at this sport because so often you get the athlete and they're kind of limited with what they can do and you spend half your time just trying to make them functional or normal. Um, So for me, with regards to the movement screen, because I'm normally in, well my last few roles have been more of a high performance role, I see the athletes every day. And so traditionally all I'll do is I'll do some kind of functional screen early on in the year. I'll do all my profiling to see how they move from like a a lower limb diagnostic standpoint. once I've got those baselines, I'll have an idea of the population I'm dealing with and where they're potentially limited. And from there, because I see them with such regularity, if I'm not picking up dysfunctions every day in the way they do a particular activity, then I'm kind of missing a trick. So from my standpoint with regards to movement quality, I kind of see it and I'll adjust it and I'll modify the program based on that. Um, But the key kind of things that I'm looking at with regards to movement skills is I want to make sure somebody is mobile. Um, and so I'll do a lot of drills that require big ranges of movements, low loads. And then once I'm, I'm happy that they're mobile enough to move relatively functional, regardless of their skill sets to do something, they have the range through the, the particular joint. Well, then I'll start to load that joint and ultimately make it a lot more stable. So that's kind of my standpoint with movement skills. I, I see them every day. I'll adjust as I need. But the kind of fundamentals are they need to be mobile enough through a joint and they need to be strong enough through range.
0: Cool. So do you want to just give us, I mean, just backtracking a little bit, do you want to give us the um, the kind of performance measures that you're referring all your data to in regards to field hockey?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so the stuff is just GPS-based. We currently use the catapult system. I, f- I found it quite useful. And for me, I... I've kind of, again, it can be a bit of a black box with some of the numbers that people look at or that get thrown out there. But I think ultimately through the research, people come back to the same thing. They're talking about work rate, meters per minute. They're talking about high intensity actions, which may be a particular um, speed zones that they've identified as high intensity. And so what I look at on the pitch is I'm looking at how hard do these players work? What's a work rate? um, What intensity are they performing that work rate at? So how many high-intensity actions are they performing? Um, and that's probably you know, the key ones to look at, the distance they cover, how hard are they working, and what's the intensity in which they work. That answers a number of things for me with regards to the game that I'm observing. We know, um, and the reason they're useful for my standpoint is because we know that in a field-based sport, the team that can re- repeat the most high-intensity actions are often the most successful. So therefore, surely your goal is to have a team that can repeat the most high-intensity actions They'll get to the ball more often, Um, they'll be there first, and they'll do it with frequency, and they'll do it towards the end of the game. Well, if that doesn't increase your chance of being successful, I don't know what will. So they're the key variables that I'll look at. So when I'm doing stuff in the gym and I'm talking about speed and when I'm talking about conditioning, I'll be able to refer back to these variables, and and over time, over certain trends you'll start to see in the data sets, you'll see the, the positive changes within the group. Cool. I mean,
0: it was one thing that, that we discussed um, on the last, well, last podcast um, with Michael Watts at Aston Villa was the, the kind of presentation of data to coaches to actually influence training, um, with, uh, especially with regards to GPS. So I know it's a very general question, but in, in a kind of overview, how are you getting that data across to coaches to, like I say, influence um, the next day or the next
1: week's um, practice? So, in the environment that I'm in, it's it's not weekend to weekend. Uh So, so our focus is very much um, kind of biannual. We might have a couple of key events in the year that we're trying to get ready for. But with regards to feeding back data to the coach, I keep it very simple. I always do it in a report form. now, I'll, I'll have plenty of graphs that kind of show the key variables that he understands. And he absolutely understands work rate. And he absolutely understands high-intensity actions because he's been with me the entire journey. Um, and we, we understand how it kind of manifests in the team. So we can see a training session. He'll tell me whether well, he thinks it's high-intensity. I'll show him the numbers. And I've, we've been doing that for a, a period of time now that he has a real understanding of how hard or how easy sessions are. And so I'll just show him graphs that basically depict work rate over a small-sided game, or work rate over a session, or work rate over two weeks, or work rate over a year. How does that relate to high-intensity stuff? And he has a clear understanding of of how this team is developing. Um, but something that I've I've always done is whenever we go away to a major event, I always have the variables that I've I've measured for the for the period of time away, and I'll I'll prepare a report post event where I'll try and answer a few performance questions that we've had in mind prior to, to going away um, and then from there I'll always summarize the way the competition went from a physical standpoint and how we managed it and that by analyzing all those data sets I always then come up with a few kind of thoughts moving forward based on what we've seen we need to look at this next time and then that becomes a bit of a an active study in the next the next trip away so I always prepare a report he gets to see it and then from there we have some kind of verbal conversations around where the group are and it always identifies another opportunity for development within the group so the program always moves forward so how does that differ when or what you presenting to the players themselves because there's things within there that's this player sensitive there's markers in there that performance scores for example um distance covers, when they're seeing how far, how hard they work to other players, there's always things within that report that are potentially a little bit sensitive. We look at menstrual data, and so there's things that we don't want to kind of get back to the athletes per se, because it can it can impact their perception of what we're doing with the data. Um, it's all important stuff. It's, it's got nothing to do with selection from their standpoint, but it's always for them, it's a diluted version, things that they understand. As a group, as a team, how did they perform? Um, From a physical standpoint, how fit were we in March? How fit were we in June? Did it change the way we played our game? Um, The opposition we played, does it it change when we play lower-ranked teams to higher-ranked teams? And that's the kind of information that I'll feed back to them.
0: So just moving on a little bit, one thing that I see popping up uh, again and again and one of the the, uh, discussion points that I fired over to you was the aerobic versus anaerobic kind of... um, discussion that, that pops up everywhere it seems what's your what's your thoughts with regards to hockey when it comes to that debate
1: um for me they're kind of they're intertwined i mean you can't you can't have one without the other the the aerobic base in field hockey is paramount i mean you've got a 70 minute game you're going to do six to eight bouts of work on the pitch the aerobic base we know plays a key role in kind of how we're able to recover between high intensity efforts so you've got to have the aerobic base, we know that if you don't have a high aerobic base it's going to limit your potential to develop the anaerobic base to some degree. Um, so for us the way the game is, we've got to play seven games in 11 days or seven games in 14 days. Well, There's a big aerobic component to be able to recover effectively between games regardless of the aerobic component and there's a big aerobic component to perform in the pitch. Um, and aerobically we're referring to high intensity actions. Well obviously that's a key part. You're looking at repeat sprint ability. You want to be able to repeat the most high intensity actions. And so it's an important conundrum. What I would say is ultimately when an athlete's on a field a field or court, you need them to use as much of an aerobic base when they're doing these high intensity works as they can, because you're able to recover quicker. Um, you want to kind of Reduce your anaerobic speed reserve in an athlete as much as you can, because that means when I'm working at a high intensity, I'm doing so more dependent on oxygen than I am on on other processes, and that's much more efficient.
0: Cool. So, how are you going about? I mean, uh, building the aerobic base. You know, um, paints the picture of kind of long, slow runs. But how are you? How are you going about developing that aerobic base with the, uh, especially with the girls that you're working with?
1: I mean, again, I think that's, that's probably it's that's one way of looking at it is it's, it's long, slow runs. For me, it's a base. So when you're working with a soccer team, a rugby team, a hockey team, they're on the pitch six to seven times a week for an hour to two hours a time. Like that in itself is developing an aerobic base. You can't do that type of work low level and not develop an aerobic base. Um, and so for me, the aerobic stuff is really developing those central adaptations You know, so changes in the heart, stroke volume, these type of things. And so then when you come to do the work on the pitch, you want it absolutely to be high intensity. You want to be able to manage that work so they do the high intensity work. Um, And that's kind of how I see it. So the aerobic stuff that we do, I'll typically do maximal aerobic type training, maximal aerobic speed training. Um, And I'll target on more central adaptations early in, in the season. And then as we get through the season, I'm making them more peripheral. Um, as we go on but yeah definitely the aerobic base is so key and the key is trying to develop athletes who can depend more on an aerobic system than an anaerobic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and then where do you come in on the anaerobic side of things? Um, again so there's different things that I'll do in season and it comes down to my philosophy on how I want to manage athletes but often when you do anaerobic work particularly when it's got change of direction there's a high physical load that comes with that, and when you think that they're also playing a game which is anaerobic in nature because I've got to jump, stop, accelerate, you're always going often from like a, a very slow speed to a high speed, so it's that need to accelerate and the, the demand that comes with that. So there's always that the natural load of anaerobic activity in the program. Well, if I go on and add even more, I start getting this imbalance in the way the athlete's managing the load. So I'll do some, but it's very timely. And I'd rather go a group of developing um, kind of peripheral adaptations with regard to VO2 max and using maximal aerobic speed training than than the speed stuff. So I almost go off of one end of the the spectrum. So I do speed, pure speed, or aerobic work early on with the group. And then as I get closer to the event, it becomes more about what people refer to as a repeat sprint or high-intensity sprint work.
0: So, again, moving on a little bit, um, there was an article out um, maybe a couple of weeks ago, maybe maybe a couple of months ago now, um, from Mark Watts at Elite FCS, I think, about the difficulty of s coaches, sports scientists, of actually assessing the impact of your work and maybe a reason why, you know, um, coaches aren't getting paid the the amount of money that they should be because it's difficult to actually assess that impact of your work. How are you going about – I know you don't have to justify your job – um maybe you do i'm not not quite sure but how do you go about assessing that impact
1: that you're having um how do you go about assessing the impact i think a lot of it is people will see coaches see outsiders see how a team develops um i feel i've kind of in the roles that i've had the group has been in a certain position and then people have observed kind of how the group developed with regards to whether it's world ranking, with regards to the aesthetics of how the team look, if it's with regards to how the team is now playing. Um, You know, the coach, coach is king and they have an understanding of how they want to play the game. I think all we are trying to do, we are not the glory boys who take, any credit for what goes on, we are just supporting a coach achieve what they want to do with the team. And if they want to play a high intensity game, your job is to help them develop athletes that can sustain that type of game. And if that coach's game plan is right, and that type of a game uh, style of play yeah. is effective, you'll get the acknowledgments as they come with the team's success. Um, so it's 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 hard to prove because it's, it's not our right to claim the success. Um, But with regards to how do you identify the change, it's like anything. You have systematic periods in a year where you reassess the variables that you've trained. So if it's aerobic, I tag them in January and then I'll do it again three months later. And if it's strength, I'll do it every 12 weeks. And if it's speed, I'll do it every eight weeks. And then if you're not graphing and seeing changes there and it's not bringing up light bulb moments for you to kind of, okay, that's not working, I need to change something, well then. That's an an internal battle that you need to have with yourself. But yeah, I mean, I get your question. I just think it's hard for us to say, "Hey, look, I did this, and and the team did well." Like, it's it's got. We are a support role. We are a cog within this um, this whole process, and so we are just one of the many um, aspects of of a successful program. Mm
0: -hmm. And so many other things going on.
1: That's right.
0: So. You mentioned them can kind of time frames, twelve weeks, eight weeks. are you presenting that, um, actively presenting that back to coaches that you so they can see the progression as well as you can?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I always do that. Whenever we've got fitness profiling, and I've stopped calling it fitness fitness testing because that scares athletes. So I've just started to call it profiling. Um and so I'll do that. It it basically, I I plan it so it's in the year. At some point we do it early ish season, then we'll do it kind of post a pre-season, I guess, and then we'll do it again mid-season and then I'll do it six to eight weeks before main event. Um so how they spread out, they're normally about three months, couple of months. Um and I'll do all, all the all the kind of variables from aerobic, anaerobic, speed, power. And it's all just set out over a week. Um I'll identify when's the best time to kind of target or I or test that particular uh quality. Um And then, yeah, like you said, what I'll do is I'll show the group where they were. We have a traffic light system that I've designed. So I know what's world class for an elite female or an elite male um, for the different variables. And then within that traffic light system, there's a a blue, green, amber, red. And then they'll get a score for all those different performance tests we do. So they know where they stand, where they need to get to to be Olympic standard, and where they currently are. So they'll establish very quickly where their work ons are. Um, But then I'll report a team. I never do individual data back to the group. I always do the team data of where we were to where we are. And that's to the coach and the and the players. And as much as I can with that, I'll try and tag in recent performance data with regards to the GPS stuff as well. So I don't want to get too invasive on
0: what <clears throat> the kind of things that you're doing. But do you want to just give us a, a rundown of the the profiling
1: that you do with the girls or the guys? Yeah, sure. Um this I mean there's there's no rocket science to this. I've I've shown this many a time. Um so, for aerobic stuff, I'll do thirty fifteen anaerobic test for anaerobic, I do repeat sprint six times forty meter, which is twenty meter shuttle for speed, I'll do straight forty meters um and then from there, I'll work out peak velocity and I'm mainly looking at five and ten meter uh for power I'll do count movement jump, squat jump um and then they're kind of the main ones on the kind of pitch based and then obviously there's a normal gym stuff where i look at single leg power i'll look at some hops lateral forward um that's more kind of baseline stuff than early season i don't repeat that too much through the year but in the gym i always test bench back squat chins cool so
0: again moving on i just want to talk to you about um obviously you've got Experience of uh, planning and peaking for Olympic Games. So, you just want to talk to us a little bit about the kind of process involved in in building up to such a big event that obviously only occurs every four years, and the kind of pressures around that.
1: Yeah, um, that's kind of the fun of the game. That's the challenge of the role. That's why we work in kind of Olympic sports. They they bring about their own pressure, um, and they create a really good training environment because of that pressure as well. So. With regards to what goes on, I mean, internally it's easy to push athletes because in our scenario you have 30 athletes that may be in a full-time squad um, and so when it comes to that training environment and we need to get competitive and get them to work hard, the reality for them is of those 30, only 16 are going to the Olympic Games. Well, if you can't get up in the morning every day and work for that spot, you're going to spend three years doing really tough training and then not go to the Olympics. So that in itself is obviously, I don't want to say an added bonus, but it's certainly um, a focus for most athletes and helps kind of sustain the work rate that we we put through them. Um, But a big part of it is we don't have to worry about what goes on at the weekend. And so we can plan long term. We can plan, you know, periods of time, periods of work. And it's a lot easier to manage the training load. Um, I know exactly what the players do Monday to Sunday because I'm the one writing it, I'm the one measuring it on the pitch. And we kind of know that anything to do with adaptation requires work. You give them a physiological poke, they get a physiological response. Um, and with all the kind of markers we use to men- measure and assess the athletes, we get an understanding of how well they're responding to all these these loading blocks. There's obviously things that you do and you focus on at different times in the year, whether it's more strength-based, whether it's... Um, more of an aerobic component that you're focusing on. But fundamentally, when you're peaking for Olympic Games, um, once you've loaded an athlete for a certain period of time and worked them fairly hard, the minute you start, or you're able to time exactly when you want to start unloading them. The overshoot and response you get from those guys is kind of, is phenomenal with regards to the adaptations that you can see in what is, potentially a seven to fourteen day period. So what's it
0: like being there at the Olympic Games in the in the kind of thick of it as the as the kind of physical
1: guy? Um it's it's interesting because it's not as hands on as you might think. It's a lot of, you know, you're there to support the program. Um you're there to make sure that kind of the athletes are comfortable. They'll have a few questions about how they should be feeling. I feel a lot of the time you're a, you're a support system with that. They need reassurance. Um, I always get the question, kind of two weeks out. Should my legs feel this tired? Why do we feel so tired? You know, and the amount of times I say this to them every six months, whichever the group, I always have to explain how they'll feel on game day. They always forget how how much better they feel on on day one, game one, and they're too concerned with feeling good two weeks out. And that, that's the biggest battle with athletes is trying to control their expectations of how they should be feeling they want to feel fresh immediately all the time and the reality is in their life that lasts four years in an Olympiad they're probably gonna feel great for like four weeks of it <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that's the kind of reality so a lot of it is just a support you're not doing a lot of things um, with the, the squads that I've worked with now I have had primer sessions that I've I've pushed on game day, So we have done physical activity, but that's something I've developed with the group that's based on some some research looking at um hormonal profiling and things. But yeah, most people it's it's very much a support. So just to touch on that,
0: again, maybe something you don't want to discuss if it is great. Um with regards to primers,
1: how you know, what what is that look, looking like? It it varies, but um yeah, I kind of. a lot of people kind of ask me about this, and I know more and more people are doing primers, but from the research that I did with Christian Cook, uh, Christian Cook and um, Scotty Draw and Blair Crew that these guys, Pete Atkinson was involved in, that the main premise was it's hormonal-based, so it's got to be individualized, and it needs to be enough of a physiological poke that it's going to create a nice overshoot in testosterone, which may ultimately primes the way I can perform Um, for sport. So if the athlete enjoys it and it's applicable to them with regards to their their physical makeup, you'll get a good response. And if they don't like it and you get it wrong, you can get a negative response. And then the other thing to be aware of is basically what we found is unless you're an elite athlete, it's probably not going to have a big effect for you. And so what you're doing is you're throwing a, a physiological session in for them prior to the the main event that may actually cause more fatigue than get them ready. So yeah, I I think with it, it's it's to be used sparingly and probably used in a way that you understand your population is elite um, and you understand the individual with regards to what what makes them function optimally, whether they're endurance or speed-based or power-based, you know?
0: Yeah. So just keep an Olympic theme. Obviously you say it's not as it's not as hands-on as um, as you may think in Olympic Games. So obviously it's recovery is gonna be um, recovery is gonna be key. So you just wanna talk to us about the kind of protocols you're using um, to get your your girls fresh for the next couple of days straight after a game?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like um, from a physiological standpoint, you'll see that. The greater the work capacity you have as an athlete or an individual, the greater recovery rate you'll probably possess. So that's obviously important prior to even getting there. Um, But what we'll do recovery-wise is it's probably very standard to what most people do. So you're going to have your individual nutritional supplementation that you'll do. We then do ice bath that's 12 to 14 degrees, full body immersion if we can. Um, From there, athletes will go compression um and then from there the next day we'll we'll probably do some off feed type activity
0: just writing this down so i can put the uh put all the links on the on the site so um so just last last little um last little question because i I don't want to keep you much more um working with ben ainsley uh obviously a bit of a legend um what was it like working with
1: people of that caliber yeah, Ben, um, I mean, he, he certainly is a legend. I was fortunate to, to spend what must have been 18 months with Ben prior to Athens in 2004. Um, and he'd obviously moved from the laser to the fin, the boat, and that for him, he was slight and he needed to gain about eight to nine kilograms. So his program was very much a hypertrophy program. And the work he was doing in the water, plus the work he was having to do in the gym to kind of Gain that weight then sustain the weight. So, from a nutritional standpoint, the diligence of doing that was kind of phenomenal. And and he was always a leader. So we'd have other guys and other sailor guys that would work around him or with him. Um, and he was a big motivator for them and very good at ensuring the entire group kind of worked hard. But he was such. Um, I always remember just being a very down-to-earth guy, great work ethic, um, and yeah, fun to work with. But a really good work ethic as an athlete.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what was his work schedule like? Jump packed. Uh,
1: yeah, no, he was he was busy. He always had a lot of sponsored things that he was doing, but he also had to put a lot of hours in on the water. And then we were based in Southampton, so he always had a fair amount of travel as well. Um, but but that was the thing. He found time to do what was a very challenging schedule and achieve some some pretty amazing things in that time. Mm-hmm. So, at what point of his career was that? Was that
0: one Olympic? Gold was that two hundred. Yeah,
1: points? he got, he got gold in Athens. Um, and there was a group of it wasn't just me working with, him, there was me and a guy called Steve Gent, who's a great SNC coach. We were both kind of working with him. Um, and and the the, ho- the whole of that GB um, sailing group. Uh, they they were a good group, and it was a, it was a good time with the Athens Olympic. I think that group did very well there. So last but
0: not least, where can people keep in touch with what you got going on? Twitter, Facebook.
1: Etc. Um, yeah, no, I'm not. I've only really got Twitter, I think. Although I could do with a few more followers on Instagram. Yeah. But, yeah put I that like out to there. take a photos of coffee. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Coffee and fingernails. I'm quite big on. Fingernails. All right. No. Interesting. I'm obviously <laughs> But yeah, no. Uh, DK Hammy is my uh, handle for Twitter and for Instagram.
0: Cool. So we've got um, Pan Am Games next week. That's right. So who's first? Obviously, you know who's first up. Who's first
1: up? Uh, we have Uruguay first game. Cool. And then moving on to. And then, so we'll play. There's a group, two groups of four, and then it goes into a quarter, semi, and final. So the others in our group are Uruguay, Chile, and someone else. And you are ranked. We are for that tournament. We'll be ranked two. Uh, Currently in world rankings were fifth.
0: Okay. Nice. And where are G B at
1: the minute? Uh GB were unfortunate at the World Cup. They had um and so that would have affected their world ranking points. I think they're currently down at seven. Um, but they actually recently won the World League three, so they'll be they'll be climbing back up those those rankings in no time.
0: Well, I'll round it up there and just say thanks a lot for your time and apologies for messing about earlier with the nineties uh, internet dial up <laughs> no worries um, and I'll um, I'll keep in touch and just thanks for
1: your time no thank you Rob it's been, it's been a pleasure mate cool thanks mate see you later alright take care cheers mate bye thanks for tuning in
0: to episode 42 of the Pacing Performance Podcast I hope you enjoyed the chat with Dave for me it was a great insight into how he runs his programme uh, and it was great that he was so honest um, and upfront about what he does but just before i let you go if you do want to tune into previous episodes of the podcast get over to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash podcast all the links that dave mentioned in the show can also be found on paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 42 follow me on twitter at pacey and you'll get to know when all the podcasts go live but i will speak to you in episode 43